July 9th, 2023. I, I wanted to this morning continue the classes that we did a few weeks ago on Agadan Halakha. We entitled them Life and Law, if you recall. And we'll quickly develop what we discussed in a very condensed fashion in the first four sources. If you recall, what we were really talking about is how halakha has and will develop over the course of time, what the ideal vision of how halakha is developed, and to a certain extent, how it has and is developing. And it began, if you recall, just several classes ago with that Gemara, Masech Berachot and Dafhet. The Gemara has the statement, V'hainu da'amar b'chiyah barameh mishemeh de'ulah, miyom she'harav bet ha'mikdash, enno la'kadosh baruchu be'olamo, ela arba'amot shel halacha bilvad. The statement in the Gemara, the Talmudic statement is, that from the day of destruction of the Mikdash, God only has in his world four cubits, six feet of halakha. Now just reading that Gemara in a vacuum seems to portray halakha, and we define that, and we'll continue to define it as the structured development of law. Uh, the asur and mutar based on sourcing and uh, fundamentals and hekesh and binyanav and the 13 midot Torah nidreshit by him. Halakha has been and will be, the Gemara seems to say, from the day of destruction of the Mikdash, the operative um, way in which we determine what to do. Now that Gemara in a vacuum again seems to tell us that if you're looking for the more organic expression of law, you're looking to discern law or to understand the relationship with God, in other domains it's not really where you're going to find it. You'll find it in Halakha. The contrast again is Agada. Agada we described as anything outside of that structure. So tefillah, for example, is the expression of turning to God and looking for a connection outside of the yes and no, asur and mutar. Well, the Gemara seems to be telling us that's not really where you're going to find God in this world. Um, what else would be included? Well, last week we looked at the Gemara in source number four, Masech Bava Batra, on Daf Yod Bet, maybe two weeks ago. And the Gemara over there is contrasting Hachamim with Nevi'im, Chokhmah and Nevoah, knowledge and uh, wisdom and prophecy and uh, divine inspiration. And by extension, to a certain extent, we might understand as well that the Gemara then in source number one is telling us if you're looking for how to connect to God, you'll find it in the domain in the world of Halakha, not so much in those prophetic realms. But, importantly, what we noted was the Gemara is talking from the day of the destruction of the Mikdash. In other words, what the rabbis are doing is not so much saying, here's the way it should be, but rather here's the way that it is. In other words, they're contrasting a time during which we had an almost uninhibited connection to God, a time during which we could be inspired directly, with a time after that, the time of the Mikdash destruction, where if you're looking for God, you'll have to find him within the confines of laws, rules, structures, and stricture. I mean, the example we gave, for example, is uh, uh, we, we mentioned a, a marriage. A marriage could be defined by the rules that the husband and wife define for themselves entering into this. Is the relationship governed by those rules? Oftentimes it is. A healthy relationship, a relationship which transcends, which uh, gives expression to the organic um, individuality of each one of the sides is one in which rules are not so much a necessity. They'll govern, they'll structure what this marriage, what this relationship is about, but what goes into it comes through in intuitive ways, in ways that are just spontaneous and natural. 
That's what the Gemara is portraying to us. It says, from the day of the destruction of the Mikdash, if you're searching for a connection to God, the original pristine way of just finding him through your everyday life, through going out and speaking to him in the normal and regular fashion is lost. We now find him only through the four cubits of halacha. It's bemoaning, it's mourning the fact, M-O-U-R-N, that we no longer have an organic, healthy expression of a relationship with God. Along those lines, Rabbi Heschel, Rabbi Dr. Heschel in source number two makes that point. In source number three, I want to just read those lines again in terms of getting across the point and then moving us forward a bit uh, in his book, Between God and Man, page 175 to 176, says to maintain that the essence of Judaism consists, consists exclusively of halakha is as erroneous as to maintain that the essence of Judaism consists exclusively of Agadah. You cannot and should not imagine that our relationship with God is only determined and governed by law, nor should you say that it's a lawless connection. There's a careful and delicate and sensitive balance. The interrelationship of halakha and agadah is the very heart of Judaism. Halakha without agadah is dead. If you're just following law without finding a natural personal connection, well, there's a certain static nature to that. There's not all that much being generated. Agadah without halakha is wild. If there's no governance, if there's no rules, if there's no structure, well, then it's anarchy. And that's what we developed. That's what we discussed yesterday. Did you say that that's what's happened today? Well, we're working on what's happened today. Uh, what I can tell you is that there are silver linings to what exists today. What I will at the same time tell you is, we do very much, and I, I mentioned this in that initial class, feel that in today's day and age, there seems to be at the very least a separation, a, long vo a large void in the middle, whereas you'll find classes and people and communities governed by inspiration, call that agada, and other ones entirely by halakha. You'll find books which are filled with uh, X, Y, and Z, 100, 2,000 pages on uh, the laws of Asher Yatsar, uh, but nothing uh, that expresses the thankfulness to God for the fact that I was able to use the bathroom in a healthy fashion, but just the laws and the re relationship with regards to governance in that fashion. And then you'll find alternatively books which are entirely dedicated to uh, the inspirational side. What we suggested is that both to a certain extent exist, but there's a large rift between the two it's rare that we find them interrelated. And the ideal expression needs to be one of interrelationship. But yes, more often than not, the overabundance of laws and, and books and lectures on law certainly is an expression of galut, of finding God only through arba mochil halacha. Again, I return us to the source number four, which will be our, our, our uh, takeoff point, and that is the Gemara in Maseche Bava Batra, Andaf Yod Bet, which has this statement of from the day of destruction of the Mikdash. Again, day of destruction of the Mikdash, the Nevuah prophecy was taken from the prophets and bestowed upon the Hachamim, the wise ones. And we teased out the meaning of that. We read from the words of Ramban Nahmani and Hatam Sofer and others. But again, the Gemara seems to be describing them as different domains, prophecy and wisdom. And then the Gemara has a, has a surprising concluding statement, or Rabbi Yohanan's concluding statement. He says on the third line here in source number four, It's not that it was per se given to the wise ones, and we suggest that, that means the lawmakers, but rather, 
velatinokot. It was given over instead to the madmen and to children. And what we suggested at the time is madmen and children hold in common the ability, naturally, uh, to defy normative structure. A so madman and children. The first bit What's that? He's talking about the first bit of Mikdash. I think he's talking about Rabbi Ohanan's post second bit of Mikdash. I know, but he says that uh, the prophecy was taken from. It's very possible. Alternatively, there was remnants of prophecy, at least in the eyes of the rabbis, that consisted that continued through the second mikdash. Either way, I don't. Uh, it's a good question. Um, but uh, again, the statement that nonetheless is that uh, madmen and children hold in common that they're able to naturally defy normative expressions. They don't think based on what everyone else thinks, they're not taught and haven't experienced life in the way that each of us has, that we can't think outside of the borders and guidelines and structure that society has governed us to be conditioned to, and as a result they have a certain spontaneity, a certain creativity. The statement in turn of each of these gemarot and each of these uh, uh, conversations we've had is how there is that careful fine line between, again, agada, which we're describing as life itself finding God, connecting to Him through just life expressions, and law, halakha, which is a necessary structure for us at all times, but primarily and specifically when we lost the natural connection during time of Galut. Now what I'd like to talk about today is to take this a little bit of a step further and to suggest that we have, over the course of the last several hundred years, and maybe even earlier, found within our halakha system believe it or not, in domains and places that some people in this room and elsewhere might feel uncomfortable with, but for me is the most beautiful expression of this interrelationship, so to speak, of prophecy and of law, of Agadah and of Halakha, as we're terming it in the title to the class. Uh, what are you talking about? Prophecy in today's day and age? How do we come close to prophecy in the last several hundred, maybe thousand years? Uh, so I'd bring you on the following direction hopefully develop it together with you. It will begin with one case study. It could be a dozen or 10 dozen case studies. We'll bring one because it very clearly, I think, articulates and portrays what I want to say with regards to this concept. The Gemaran Masechet Eruvin and Dafsadivav has derashot, one of two, with regards to the fact that men on Shabbat and on Yom Tov don't put on tefillin, that they shouldn't be putting on tefillin. One of the primary expressions is that of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is Doresh, the fact that the Pasuk describes Tefillin as an ot, as a sign. And in turn, his, his explanation is, you need to be placing that sign of covenant between yourself and God on days and at times where that sign and covenant is not already expressed and present. Shabbat and Yom Tov are a time during which that sign of covenant is already there, it's manifested, everybody experiences and realizes it. What about on Cholamo'ed? What about on the intermediary days of Pesach and of Sukkot? Should men be putting on tefillin on those days? The Gemara is never explicit about this matter. The Gemara only says Yamim Tobim and Shabbat are the days on which Rabbi Akiva says have that ot. What about Cholamo'ed? The easiest question to be asked over here is any conversation we have is going to take place in the last 500 or 800 years. What was being done until 800 years ago? is a question in and of itself, which we've addressed on other occasions. But 
about uh, 700 years ago. In Tur, in source number six, that's the son of Rosh, an important rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov ben Harosh, who began in Germany, where he was born and bred and grew up, and then moved to Spain and spent much of his professional career as a uh, jurist, as a halachist in uh, Spain. Uh, he writes in Ora Haim in Siman Lamed Aleph, Shabbat v'yom tov lav zeman tefilin hen. There's a safek, it's uncertain. He says, as a result, many people put on tefillin without a beracha. And my father, Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher ben Bar Yechiel, he would put them on, and he would make a beracha on them. Oh, that's the Pesach Halacha of Rosh. But it leaves us still wondering, where did this come from and what's the bottom line, so to speak, for me and you, for Ashkenazic and Sephardic Jewry today, and Beit Yosef in source number seven writes what in my mind for this class is foundational uh, description of the development of this. He begins in source number seven. He first quotes from Tosafot about the uh, deliberation about the law of Tefillin on Cholamoed. So he cites initially from Tosafot and from Rosh that the developed custom, maybe in, uh, in Ashkenaz in Germany, possibly in northern France, is that at certain times they were putting on Tiflin on Holomoed because of the Safik Berachot, they were uncertain whether you should be or shouldn't be, they didn't make a Beracha. He continues with another German source. The Hamordechi Katab Beshemri, Denira Reayagimura Minha Yerushalmi, the Holomoed Hayab Betifilin brings a source from Talmud Yerushalmi that you must be wearing tefillin, which means with a beracha. Ve'katav od, u'besemak, ken katav besefer ha'teruma, perishu di'yesh la'aniyach belo beracha. There's a discussion, there's a debate in German and northern French lands about whether to wear tefillin with a beracha or without a beracha. What seems clear is, generally speaking, and until very recently, to the best of my knowledge, Ashkenazi communities in America, on Holamoed, put on tefillin. It's in the 15, 17 years or so that I'm married, I saw a market shift in the young Israel of Staten Island, for example. Whereas when I first got married, I was the minority not wearing tefillin. Over the course of time, it's true, many Hasidim have moved into Staten Island. But regardless, it seems to me second and third generation Americans have stopped putting on tefillin, even Ashkenazim on Holamoed, which is interesting. In the past, it was Hasidim. And today's day and age, more and more Ashkenazic Jews have stopped putting on, for one reason or another, tefillin on Holamoed. What about Sephardic Jews, and where does that come from? Continues Beit Yosef, Rashba, who's a rabbi from Barcelona, he's a Spanish rabbi, he says, we don't put on tefillin. Now, Beit Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo, writing some 450 plus years ago, has the following comment. Ve'achshav, and today. Nahagu kol sefarad, all of those who live in Spain, they don't put on tefillin on cholamoyed. Didn't we just provide ample evidence that maybe you should, at the very least, put them on without tefillin? 
Shamati, I heard, says Beit Yosef, without a beracha, I'm sorry. This is, I heard back in the day, a couple hundred years ago, they used to put on tefillin without a beracha, like Rosh. Rosh, as I said, moved from Germany to Spain. Apparently, he brought with him that custom, or in Spain, they were putting on to. What changed? The Hakach afterwards, Maseu, Shekatav Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Ma'amar Echad, they afterward found in a book called Zohar, attributed to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, that it says in there you shouldn't be putting on tefillin on Cholamoed. The Alken and therefore Nimneum Lahniham be Cholamoed. They decided to stop putting on tefillin on Cholamoed. Let's pause and reflect what happened over here. There was a debate amongst classic halachists. Tosafot, Ra'avad, Rashba, Rosh, many names that we're familiar with, with texts of Gemarot, Talmud Bavli, Talmud Yerushalmi, different texts and interpretations which were floating around and being debated. There was an uncertainty. Some communities were doing one way, others another way. In Spain, the custom shifted at the time during which Zohar, which around the time of Beit Yosef was being discovered or being uh, disseminated, um, they found within this book called Zohar that you should not be wearing tefillin on Chola Mo'ed. Well, tell me about the nature of this book of, of Zohar. Well, Zohar, again, attributed to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is more than a halakha book, though. It's not a halakha book at all. Zohar is a agada book, we would uh, term it. Zohar uh, expresses different understandings of God's workings of this world. It does mention halakha as it discusses and explains Pesukim in the Torah, but its expressed purpose is not to be a code of law. And nonetheless, if you look in the book Zohar, you'll find the passage which is quoted by Maran, by Bet Yosef over here, that says, you shouldn't be putting on tefillin on Chola Mo'ed. I have several questions. First and foremost, should this be a text, Zohar, which is entered into the halakha conversation? Secondly, aside from it being agada in terms of its nature, why was it given so much emphasis and so much focus? And the answer very clearly is that a Bishimon Bar Yochai in the Talmud, in the, the legends and lore, is described as an individual who had a relationship with God which was transcendent, almost prophetic in nature. Zohar describes Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai as having a direct conversation, so to speak, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. As a result, it was given a transcendent level in terms of appreciation, in terms of understanding. We gave a lot of credence to the book called Zohar. Zohar. Should that be entered into the halachic conversation? So it's not only Agadah, it's so to speak Nivuah as well, a quasi Nivuah, Ruach HaKodesh Nivuah perhaps, but that was entered into the conversation as well. And I remind you that it's not just part of the conversation. The determining factor over here and feature for why Sephardic Jewry until today do not put on tefillin on Cholam is because of the words of Zohar. Isn't that a fascinating thing? I take a step back and then we'll take it forward again and wonder. Leave your potential uh, um, preconceived uh, notions and feelings about Zohar aside. Appreciate it without the name Zohar, without Abishimon Bar Yochai, as my words, Agada. Appreciate it as a work which was written through spontaneous conversation, understanding with God and this world. Appreciate it as Midrash in the Gemara. Appreciate it as something which is written without the constructs and, and, and structure and stricture of halakha books. 
but rather as an expression of understanding Torah, understanding Borei Olam. Appreciate that as Agada in its most pristine and pure sense. Should that be governing Halakha Lema'aseh? Well, what we've discussed over the course of time is that it should have a voice in the halakha system. It should. The day of destruction of the Mikdash, we no longer have place for that any longer. It's dangerous. It's wild in the words of Heschel, if you recall. But when it is structured and placed within the context of a halakha discussion, there's proofs within our halakha system one way and another way. I can see it like this, I can alternatively understand it like that. Tefillin could be put on or shouldn't be put on. If I have a debate in that respect, isn't it appropriate then for a prophetic quote-unquote text? Which one takes, so what I'm telling you is, what I'm telling you is if it's brought in a vacuum, or if it's brought as an alternative, the Gemara says don't, and the Zohar says do, Bet Yosef very clearly in several places quotes from Radvaz, we go with Talmud. We can't any longer just be prophetically inspired, just have an Agadah expression of how we're going to do. However, and this is the critical and key line, if it's already within the structure of Halakha, if the argument could be made this way and that way using the regular methodology, terminology, and direction of Halakha, and now I have a text which is Agadah in nature, of course that should sway. In other words, that's my suggestion over here, that if you're looking for, so to speak, ironically, the Agadah in today's day and age, which determines halakha, which is our expression of an organic vision of God and ourselves, which sees our lives as intermeshed or, or enmeshed with, uh, with Torah and halakha in a natural fashion, Zohar is the place to look. There's a danger in just being posek based on Zohar. It doesn't work based on the, uh, the governance of the laws of halakha per se. If it's a conversation which is governed and determined already within the structure of halakha, it's there that we say absolutely this is a source which can and will be given credence. The question in turn, now taking a step back or forward depending on how you envision this, goes as follows. As we're suggesting now then, it goes like this. There was once a time of prophecy. Prophecy ceased in some respect. Halakha became operative, mournful, bemoaning. We wish there was still a prophetic type of inspiration. So we suggested in the context of that conversation, that's where something in the realm of mysticism, of Agadah, which becomes injected within, is that silver lining. You might say, but it doesn't belong, but maybe it does belong. Maybe it's most appropriate. My question goes like this. What about during the days of prophecy? What about when we had prophets, when there were Nevi'im who were instructing or rebuking people? How was halakha being determined then? Did we determine halakha specifically and only based on a system of halakha? Was there a certain credence, a certain strength to the words of the prophet? Again, if we're suggesting there should be a beautiful enmeshing of the two, well, it means in the days of the prophets, well, something. We want to discern, we want to figure out what happened then. Harambam takes a very clear stance on this matter. Harambam in several places. I know Ezra won't be happy I only quoted one of the places, but here's where he's perhaps most clear about it is in his introduction to Perusha Mishnayot. Um, Harambam is very clear, we'll read a few of his lines, that forever, as long back as the Torah was given, prophecy never did nor never will determine halakha. Prophecy is to be seen as separate, distinct 
from halacha in the eyes of Harambam. That's his vision of it. Ka'asher met, halav hashalom, it describes that the death of Moshe, ukvan masar li Yoshua, perushim shinitenulo, v'askubahem Yoshua v'anshe doro, umashelo shamu min anavi, yesh b'se'ifav masau matan, v'nelmad bo hadin b'darkeh ha'iyun, says Harambam, when Moshe Rabbeinu, the direct conduit from and to God, deceased, how did we determine what to do? He says, we learned it based on the traditional ways of understanding Torah. We went back to Gemara terminology. What was Yehoshua and Pinehas and anyone else in the future generation doing? They weren't turning to prophecy to determine law. How were they determining law? The same way the Gemara determines law. They were making Kekesh and Gezerah Shavah and Binyana Mikatuve Had and Shnei Ketubim and Shnei Ketubim Abayim Kehad and so on and so forth. That's what they were doing. Says Harambam, so much so that if a prophet came to inject his opinion, he would be counted as one of the scholars. We would say there's a hundred scholars on one side, a hundred and one scholars on the other side, but this side, the hundred, has a prophet. So what? The hundred and one will win out. He would say, but my law is the operative law, and I'm going to tell you I determined it from prophecy. We would say he's a Navi Sheikh and potentially liable of death penalty. Harambam's very clear about this. In Harambam's eyes, anything and everything we've been discussing is not so appropriate. For Harambam, prophecy, call it Agada, seems to have never really had a stronghold, a strong position within Halakha. Halakha needs to be within that clear structure of a system which is governed based on logic and intellectual pursuits, not the organic expression. That's perfect, it's beautiful, find God in such a fashion. Don't act based on that. Now, Harambam is not the, in my opinion, majority view on this matter. There are many sources who directly uh, dispute his notion, uh, starting with Sefer HaKuzari of Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi in source number 10. Our instruction as per the Torah is to listen to the judge of our day. Pasuk says later in Sefer Devarim, You're going to go to the Supreme Court, to the Sanhedrin, and you'll listen to them. So far, so good. Why are you listening to them? Harambam would say because they're the wisest, because we've given them authority, they're the majority opinion on this matter. First and foremost, Talmudic law as we know it is, we listen to the Sanhedrin at a time when we have Mikdash. Still, why so? Nishalu b'haviyatan v'davik ba'en ainyan ha'eluhi lelo kol safek im derech nivua on be'emsaut siua memeromim v'he'arai eliona k'moshaya davar kol yeme ba'yecheni says Haram says Kuzari. Do you want to know why we listen to Sanhedrin? Do you want to know what the power vested in the Supreme Court of Judaism was? It was by means of nivua. That's a startling statement. It means for Kuzari, in direct contrast to Harambam, Nivuah was not only possible in the context of Halakha, it was necessary. Sanhedrin, the Shofet, Asher Yeh had that power, according to the Torah, because they were connected to prophecy. Harambam would say the opposite is true. If they were determining it based on prophecy, we would scorn them, we'd throw them out of the Sanhedrin. Kuzari says, it was the purpose of Sanhedrin. It was for them to connect to God in that what we're calling Agada fashion. Go ahead. So what does the Kuzari do with the Pasuk in Naalan Dabar Maniha? The Supreme Court said it makes a mistake, which means it's not necessarily 
I don't understand the question. There were no prophets no. who made mistakes in terms of their prophetic visions and understanding. No, they didn't get the inspiration. I understand. So that's the point. The point is they never had a clear, he would say something along the lines of, they never had a clear vision as to what the halakha is in this circumstance. They make a decision and it's wrong. And they have to be in for it. So therefore, they have room to be sick. I'm, ha, ha, as a Maimonidean scholar, Ezra, Harambam's vision of Akedat Yitzhak was that it began with a misunderstanding. It means there are prophecies which are misunderstood. Na'ilam hadavar, because they misunderstood their prophetic vision, is what Kusari probably would respond. Mi'iri Rabbeinu Menachema Mi'iri, a Provençal, a southern French rabbi living sometime after Harambam, has a similar approach, a little bit more nuanced. In his introduction to Perkei Avot, he suggests the following. He says, in the days of prophets, in the days of Nevi'im, there was one of two angles. Either they would prophetically understand the law, or alternatively, they could do it in the traditional way. They were that, right? In other words, that's, that's correct. In words, so in, in a positive sense. So that's right. So, so uh, very nice. Um, so, so says Mi'iri, it was one of two. In other words, in the days of the Nevi'im, what would be the case was, Mi'iri writes, either they would be prophetically inspired, or if there was no prophetic inspiration, there was no connection in that respect, they would do it in the way that you and I study Talmud and understand Halakha today. But what emerges for me, which is most significant, is that moving backward, you see, in today's day and age, in the culture and climate that we live, we understand halakha, and Hacham Vadya Yosef had a big effect in this respect. Halakha is being distinct and distinguished from, so to speak, the prophetic spiritual domain. This is what you do. That's maybe how you think. That's maybe how you speak to God. It's not what you do for God. What I'm suggesting through these sources already is, even in the days of the, of, of the Nevi'im, Nevi'ah was oftentimes, according to many, determining what we did. Harambam would tell you, ah, don't think like that for a second. That's Harambam. In the context of our conversations about Agadan Halakha, it's very appropriate that we see that the Nevi'im who were living that sort of inspiration from God were operating in such a fashion. The last thing for today's class that I'd like to address is, what does the Gemara say about this? I imagine many, if not all of us, are thinking, well, don't we know the Gemara which says, Lo Doesn't the, don't the rabbis tell us it's not in the heavens? We're not determining law based on the heavenly inspiration? How is anyone and everyone going to address those sorts of issues? So that's the last thing I'd like to do because it's anything but simple and if anything is only going to drive us to the same point that we've tried to develop until now, that fine line between what we're calling Agadah and Halakha. So let me uh, try to portray that for you, but again, briefly summarize what we've suggested henceforth, uh, thus forth, uh, we've suggested until now this Halakha and Agadah balance a balance between absolute structure, this is what the system tells me I should do based on the principles of the system. We have a governance system which determines for us how to act based on a set of rules. And then we have alternatively what we call life. Life has developed in this fashion. I speak to God in its expression of halakha. I, 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 I become inspired from God. I have a mystical connectedness to God. And that in turn will determine law as well. And we've teased out when and how each of these have been appropriate and understood that the rabbi's suggestion that from the day of destruction of the Mikdash, all we have is halakha 
is a mournful statement. We wish we had more than that. Don't we yearn for a relationship which is not only governed by honey, you were supposed to do this because it says in the Kitubah you do so. Uh, darling, you know that's your responsibility based on American law. Alternatively, we have a law for one another. We understand, we know how to act based on just the knowledge of the other and the reciprocity of this relationship. Certainly, and I'm telling you today as well, and, that's, that, and that's, that is the critical point of this class, to say, state it clearly at any point and every juncture where we have had the agada expression of life, the nivua expression of life, it's always been in conjunction with halakha, it's been within the system. That's why I brought the example of tefillin. Tefillin, we don't just not put on tefillin on holom word because Zohar says to, and in your, you know, in your, in your, in your, in your gesticulations and, and they're with the feeling holy about it. No, it's because we've worked through the sugya. We've determined that there is two expressions, two understandings of this. And now, where does that leave me uh, practically? Now I can be left practically through the inspiration in that respect. A hundred percent. That's why I remember actually for the first time having a, a, a glimpse of this sort of, this sort of notion is in the introduction to the book. I, I forgot what it's called. There was a collection of Teshubot by Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu. He has a long passage on this matter. He says, how is it that people, Sephardic Jews, Ashkenazic alike, sometimes determine law based on Kabbalah, based on mystical sources? And he's really writing this against the camp of Hacham Vadya Yosef and others. And what he suggests is it's not something... Uh, out of nothing. It's not, so to speak, an inspiration. It says it in Zohar. Or we feel this based on an understanding of the, the, the world as it is in some metaphysical sense. It always can and must be determined through a layering. It starts with the structure of halakha. When you have a standstill in halakha, when you have a equivocal moment where you have it could go this way, it could go that way, then the words of inspiration shine through. Then the words of nivuah gada are able to sway it. The Gemara in Masechet Shabbat and Afkofda has the following statements also at the beginning of Masech and Megillah. Gemara over there says, Man Sepach, take a look at those letters for a moment. If you know some Kabbalah, don't pay attention to the Kabbalistic side of this. Pay attention to the Talmud side of this. Man Sepach, Mem Nun Sadi Pechaf. Each of those are the letters that we have, end letters. Uh, we have a Mem Sofit and a Nun Sofit and a Sadi Sofit and so forth, right? Those are the end letters. Where do those end letters come from? The understanding of the rabbis is Sofim Amarum. Their tradition is Sofim, Litzapot, or a Sofeh is a person who's a prophet. The Gemara is suggesting that those end letters, which we find in our Sifre Torah and our Sifre Kodesh, are from the prophets. One second. How could that be? If a Sefer Torah is supposed to be written, and we understand it as a mandate to write a Sefer Torah, well, then how could we change the letters of the Sefer Torah? And the Gemara is suggesting came from the prophets. didn't come from Moshe Rabbeinu. It's not in the Torah all the way back. That says it comes from Vetisberah. Is that possible? That the prophets came forth and, and with a novel notion that there's an end letter as opposed to writing the end of, the, of uh, I don't know, of uh, Am with a regular Mem. You do it with a closed Mem. That came from the prophets after the time of the Torah. These are the mitzvot. We have a principal prophets aren't allowed to bring forth something. Says the Gemara. 
they were in operation. They were forgotten. The prophets restored it. Well, listen to the prophetic inspiration over here. It's within the system. The suggestion of the rabbis is this was within the system. It was forgotten. We needed the prophets to resuscitate it. Similar in this respect to our Kabbalah conversation, there is a conversation. We're uncertain should tefillin be put on or not. We have, so to speak, the prophetic inspiration. We have the Zohar of Bishimon Bar Yochai shine through and tell us, here's the law over here. It's not that it came out of thin air. It's shechachum v'chazru v'yesadum. The Gemara Masechet Timuran, Daftat Zayin, says, Amar of Yudah Mar Shemuel, Sheloshet alafim halachot nishtakechu b'yimei evlo shel Moshe. There were 3,000 laws, significant number for another conversation, that were forgotten in the days of the morning for Moshe. Understand that. After the closing of the Torah, morning for Moshe, we forgot 3,000 laws. Amru lo Yoshua she'al. They turned to Yoshua and they said, Ask God. Get prophetically inspired. Amar lahem lo bashamayimhi. He says, it's not in the heavens. The Pasuk tells us, I can't ask the heavens for the law. Later on, they asked Shmuel, The Gemara is being clear over here. Understand that a prophet cannot and will not just manufacture a law through prophecy. The Gemara furthermore has a statement, so many forgotten laws, Yoshua couldn't just retrieve them through prophecy. Because to manufacture a law, to bring forth something without a system which is already in place, to have an Agadah without the enmeshing of Halacha is an impossibility. That's in contrast, or maybe hand in hand, depending on how we read it, to the following, to the next two Gemarot. Before we read the next two Gemarot, let's skip one. Let's read number 15. Number 15 we focused on a lot last week. Uh, let me remind you what the Gemara says. We focused on the first part of the Gemara. Elia Jama has, has, has more than once told me I have to focus on the last part of the Gemara. The Gemara says that for three years, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel disagreed one with the other. Some said Asur, probably Beit Shammai, and others said Mutar, probably Beit Hillel. Until a heavenly voice came out of the heavens and said, The law is, the living law of God is uh, both, both Asur and Mutar. However, said the heavenly voice, the law is to be followed like Betila. Lots of problems, as we've addressed in the past. But one final problem, one final problem, as a beautiful Gemara, it gives me perspective, understanding on how halacha works, multiple truths, all that sort of business. What's the last name of halacha kebetilel? And that's always cited as the reason why we follow Betilel. One second, the reason we follow Betilel is because the heavenly voice said halacha kebetilel. Now, the Gemara does go on to explain how Betilel had a certain character trait. Betilel had a way of mentioning the words of Bet Shammai before their own words. And as a result, they were accepted more easily by the people. But these words that the heavenly voice determined, that's surprising. That's hard to understand unless it's again the Haggadah within Halakha. Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, each one of them made claims. They didn't just become inspired Halakhas like me or Halakhas like you. They had a claim. They worked within the Midot Shatoran Treshubayim. They had the methodological direction and determinations. I hold Asur. You maintain Mutar. What's the Halakha? It's then and specifically then that a heavenly voice could intercede and determine and the Halakha will follow that camp. It's a fascinating thing, but again, it, there's, there's a, for me, 
a certain refreshing side to it. Because instead of halacha being specifically and only structured by the strict yes or no based on these determinations, there's something beyond that that gleans through, that, that if you read carefully, shines through. There's the heavenly voice, there's the divine inspiration that could and should be found by us throughout our lives. This, in contrast, perhaps, to the Gemara Masech Bava Mitzian, source number 14, and Afnun Teta Mutbet, the famous Tanur Shel Achnai, Rabili Eze disagrees with the Hachamim. They're talking about a specific circumstance of the, uh, the purity or impurity um, that's uh, relevant to a particular oven which was broken and then plastered back together. The particular is not significant for us other than the story that follows. Rabili Eze is trying to prove his point, which is actually a lenient point, and he brings all sorts of miracles to prove his point. He has a, a stream which is going in one direction, change its direction to show halakhas like him. He has a tree become uprooted and a mountain and a wall of the Midrash begin to crumble and so on and so forth. And the hachamim consistently and constantly push him off. Finally, a heavenly voice emanates and says, halakhas like Rabbi Ezra, at which point Rabbi Yoshua says, absolutely not. Lo we don't listen to heavenly voices. We determine law over here. Based on majority, based on aharera bim lehatot, where does that Gemara leave us? So much so that they excommunicated Rabili Ezer subsequently for going against the methodology. But understand the particulars again of that Gemara. Within the methodological domain of Halakha, not Agada, how do we determine law? The majority wins. The majority was the Hachamim. Rabili Ezer, you can't bring Agada as an expression of your opinion. You can bring it when we're dealing with a standstill. I have a claim like this, I have a claim like that, I have a Bet Hillel, I have a Bet Shammai. Each of them are butting heads one against the other. Now, well, let's see what makes sense. Let's become inspired from other, uh, from other ways of life and other ways of connection. Over here, that's not what's taking place. This is within the law system. There's a defiance of the law system. If the system is being defied, uh, that's where we draw the line. Which means to say what I believe the hachamim throughout Talmud are carefully uh, and, and sensitively slicing and, and putting together for us is a tapestry of how to appreciate halakha and agada as one. Ha agada on its own cannot and will not ever be operational. The Shofet Ahem, who according to Kuzari is inspired by divine revelation, still needs to follow it up with a law paper. He needs to follow it up by explaining the interpretation that he got from above based on the methodology from below. It's explicitly stated, I saw this quoted on Shabbat in source number 18, Mi'iri in his same introduction to Perkei Avot writes the following, he says, after the prophets of old used to get their inspiration, which Mi'iri believes, as to what we should do according to Halakha, they would then sit down together with the scholars and determine how to find it in the Torah. That's a fascinating thing. That's like, I was inspired, I'm certain this is true. Can you prove it? They had to prove it nonetheless. Not because they wouldn't be accepted if they didn't prove it otherwise. Oh, it was divine after all. But within the system, it wouldn't, it wouldn't enter into the system. The system is one which has to be governed by law, which has to have a certain structure to it. And as a result, again, back to our example of the tefillin on Hola Mo'ed, should you or should you not be putting the tefillin on Hola Mo'ed? If we could determine that, the majority opinion is one way as opposed to the other, Zohar would play no role. 
Zohar ironically or, or refreshingly plays a role because we're stuck at a moment where the methodology tugs me in two directions. And in that moment, specifically in those moments, we say, oh, bashamayim he. We want to tap into shamayim in this moment. I couldn't and wouldn't just turn to shamayim without working within this system, but I've worked within the system and I'm still stuck. And now let me find the way that it speaks to me, uh, even in a, so to speak, post-exile life. Uh, the suggestion in turn might shed some light on a surprising Gemara, Maseche Berachot and Daf Nuna Aleph. The Gemara over there, it begins with the conversation, not significant, but it says, Halacha like Beti Leil. So the rabbi's question, of course the Halacha's like Beti Leil. Who would think otherwise? You needed to tell me the Halacha's like, what's always like Beti Leil? Says the Gemara, the Hanafka Batkol. A heavenly voice came out and said, Halacha's like Beti Leil. Two answers of the Gemara. Either this was stated before the heavenly voice emanated, which means to say we're giving credence to the heavenly voice, or alternatively, this follows the opinion of Rabbi Yoshua that we don't care about the heavenly voice. This is a Gemara which again is teasing out and struggling with how much interconnectedness is there within our system of halacha to, so to speak, agada domains and realms. The question is a constant question. The question is one which I think we need to ask ourselves on a consistent basis. How do I govern my relationship between myself and HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Is it strictly and only defined by halacha? I'm stepping out of our class for a moment to understand the ramifications. Do I understand my relationship with God as only governed by I should do or I should not do? Or alternatively, is my relationship with him governed within what I should and should not do, within that structure, within that methodology, and how does that now express itself in relationship? How do I get a certain, a certain get on terms that extend and transcend beyond the specific laws in this respect? Uh, the rabbis, in fact, in this past week's parasha, when they talk about Yehoshua, the greatness of Yehoshua in the eyes of the rabbis, lay not in his wisdom per se. It was in the fact that he was diligent in being involved with the life of Moshe throughout. The pasuk says, you should give of your majesty, of your splendor upon him. The instruction of God to, through Moshe to Yehoshua is not so much that you'll become a wise person, but you'll become a person who's attuned to reality, attuned to a world of spirituality, attuned to a world of agada. The suggestion in turn throughout this class and these classes is that to strike the, the, the balance between Agadah and Halakha is not simple. It begins both before the destruction of Mekdash and afterwards within a structure called Halakha. If it's lost within just Halakha, however, if our lives become Shabbat is I do this and I don't do that, well, then that's not Shabbat at all. If Shabbat doesn't have a spiritual essence to it, an Agadah expression, you're not really living Shabbat. You're living a do and don't day. You're living holidays which are expressed through hearing sounds instead of becoming inspired by what the shofar says to you. If halacha becomes just halacha, you're living a real exiled life. I bring you back to that Gemara that we mentioned in conjunction with this later in Masechet Berachot. The day of the destruction of the Mikdash, Sha'are Tefilanin Alu, the gates of prayer were locked. However, even though the gates of prayer were locked, the gates of tears were left open because the difference between prayer without tears and prayer with tears is the difference between these are the words I should say and these are the words that I want to say. The difference between I know that's what it says in the prayer book 
and I know that's what my heart and soul are saying. The suggestion in turn is to find the balance between Agadan Halakha, is to find the balance in our own lives and true relationships with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to realize that as much as all the way back to the time of the Nevim, Halakha in the eyes of Harambam on one extreme had to be the operative a method of determining what to do, for others, it was halakha, but within it, within that case of halakha, encased within it, agada, or what we call nevuah, to understand that miyom shehara bet hamikdash, nitela nevuah min hanevim, vinitena lachachamim, has a major depth to it. The depth in that statement is such that, although we no longer have prophets, if we have true scholars, if we're determining halakha in the appropriate fashion, somewhere in between the lines, we're going to find the shotim, the madmen. We're going to find the children. We're going to find those inspirations of agada, of nivuah within a beautiful system of halakha, as it should be. Baruch Adonai le'olam. Amen.